Hey, hey, everybody. I've got to uh, adjust my screen and everything here because <clears throat> it's getting back to my regular hardware from my trip last week. Good to be back in my normal time zone. Uh, I have to say that the weather today <clears throat> um, does uh, somewhat make me miss Arizona, but uh, that's okay. I, I, I don't mind. I have my little... Uh, a little space heater tucked underneath my table here tonight, so we should be all right. Uh, welcome, everybody. <laughs> welcome to class number nine of the Watership Down class. We are coming towards the end. Fortunately, this isn't the last class that we've come to the end of the reading. And uh, we, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm, as I was planning today's class, I kept thinking, gosh, am I glad we scheduled an extra class for next time. Uh, and then remember, we're going to do, we're going to talk about the film the week after that. Um, but uh, before I, uh, before we start, I have a, a few announcements tonight. Uh, first, uh, I wanted to two, of course, uh, very urgent things in the sense that they're things that are happening very soon. One is Mythmoot. Been announcing Mythmoot for a while now, and it's actually happening this very weekend as is. Uh, I'm uh, uh, bringing, getting ready to head down to Baltimore tomorrow uh, to see a bunch of you guys, uh, and uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, for a couple of people were asking, is it still possible to register for Mythmoot? Yes, it is still possible. Um, uh, we we can take uh, we got clearance to take registrations right up uh, uh, to the end. So. Um, you know, there there is still time. Please, uh, you know, if if you uh, if you think you might want to come, might be able to join us in Baltimore this weekend. By all means, come. Um, but anyway, that's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to seeing many of you and hearing some of the papers that have emerged from our MythGuard Academy discussion. So I'm I'm very excited about that. Um, so that's one thing, just to uh, remind people that MythMood is this weekend. The second thing, um, which is the, uh, a thing which is almost as imminent as that, and that is the start of the spring semester uh, at MythGuard. So we're going to uh, we're going to be starting our classes, our regular classes, right after MythMood. I think this was an awesome idea of mine, by the way, to have MythMood happen the weekend before classes begin. But anyway, um, we're um, we're going to so we're, we're we're starting our spring semester um, on uh, Monday and uh, and Tuesday, the twelfth and thirteenth of January next week. So um, and you know we have two literature courses that are starting up right now. Um, the uh, part two of Amy Stern just is excellent science fiction survey class. Uh, again, I just can't recommend this enough to people who are interested in science fiction, or if, you know, if you you want to gain a grounding in science fiction, um, you know, to sort of read many of the classics of science fiction. This is just the best possible context in which to do that. And of course, Tom Shippey's awesome Beowulf class, um, where you're going to get a chance to study Beowulf and Tolkien's take on Beowulf with like literally the best person on the planet to take such a class with, Tom Shippey, um, and to be able to hear from him about Tolkien and Beowulf, um, if that's going to be awesome. Um, uh, it uh, won't surprise you to hear that that class is already uh, coming up on uh, setting the record for uh, highest enrollment ever in the history of Mythgard. Um, so uh, don't miss out. Everybody's doing it. It's going to be awesome. <clears throat> so uh, don't be the only one not attending uh, uh, Dr. Shippey's Mythgard class. 
Um, so anyway, uh, th those two things coming up, <clears throat> you can go to our website, mythgard.org, uh, to find more information on our upcoming spring classes. The third announcement, um, also imminent, though not quite <clears throat> so imminent as either of the first two, but getting there, is uh, we, we are soon going to be... Uh, uh, starting up the elections for the next book. As, of course, we're coming to the end of Watership Down, it is definitely time for us to decide what we're going to be discussing next. Um, so, um, I uh, want to uh, just warn you to keep an eye, you know, for the, those of you who are on the Council of the Wise, the Council of Nominees, um, your discussions will be beginning soon, and uh, and then you know the electors will have a chance to uh, to weigh in and decide what book or books we do next. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what uh, the head of the council, uh, 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 Dr. Powell, with the mind of metal and wheels, has in mind if we're going to be electing one or two books this time. But uh, but in any case, um, uh, it, you know now is going to be the opportunity for uh, for us to decide, or for you to decide, I should say, um, what we're going to be talking about for the next few months after we finish Watership Down. Just one first, says Dr. Powell. Okay, one first. So we're going to be discuss uh, doing the next book. So uh, keep an eye out for that. I will be very interested to see. Uh, what uh, what goes on with that? Um, always excited to see what the next Mythgard Academy book is going to be. So let's talk about Watership Down. Should we talk about Watership Down? Let's uh, let's let, let's get back to book four, especially since I just left us at the end of class last time on the cusp of talking about the the final uh, or almost final and. Um, uh, uh, final complete, anyway, story of El Herrera, and really most fun, I think, uh, story of El Herrera, the story of Rousby Woof and the fairy Wogdog. Um, so let's start off by looking at that uh, really very excellent story. And the thing I want to focus on in looking at the story of Rousby Woof is the depiction of rabbit culture. Uh, you know, we, we've been looking at the El Herrera stories as, as, as kind of the standard uh, for rabbit culture and sort of seeing what we can learn about, you know, kind of rabbit standards of judgment, you know, from, uh, from, from reading those stories. Um, so that we're not just sort of imposing our own anthropocentric viewpoint upon the rabbit world, but really trying to understand what this story is depicting as the rabbit world sort of from the inside, and, and the stories of El Herrera are our greatest insight into that. The story of Rasby Woof, in one sense, is kind of a fringe story. It's, it's sort of different from the rest of them, right? Um, there is a sense, I think, in which we don't really learn all that much new about rabbits, per se. Right. Um, in many ways, in fact, it, it 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 kind of seems to me, or well, sort of feels to me, I guess I would say, almost like the story of the Black Rabbit of Inlay is like the climax of the Elohera story. It's 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 not the end. We know that it's not the end, <clears throat> even within that story, um, the story of the Black Rabbit of Inlay. Um, there was, uh, you know. In indications that many other stories were happening, and uh, uh, and that it, uh, um, you know, was and, and that there were going to be many stories that were going to follow after that, you know, with uh, El Herrera with the starlight ears and all that kind of thing. So it, it's not like there was any sense of the end at the end of that, but 
thinking of kind of the career of El Herrera as we've gotten it in these stories, it really does kind of seem like a culmination. It's sort of at the end of the, you know, where we leave El Herrera at the end, you know, the interrupted end um, of the story of, uh, of the Black Rabbit of Inlay, it's sort of hard to see exactly where does he go, what does he do from here, and the, other, the only other story that we get is the story of Rasby Woof. And as I say, it's, it's sort of different in character, mostly because it is so focused on that other character, that is the character of Rasby Woof. It's a story of, it's, it's an El Herrera story, but it's an El Herrera story about how he deals with this one other character and the relationship between him and this other character, and in many ways the differences between him and this other character. Um, it's a story of, you know, trickery and triumph of El Herrera like the other stories, but it's a lot more ad hominem, or ad Conem, I suppose it would be, uh, than uh, than than the other stories are. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting observation. Carolyn <coughs> Morehouse uh, uh, says it it reminds her of the Tom Bombadil story. It almost seems imported from another place. Uh, that's that's uh, um, that's interesting. And Yana makes a really excellent point that it has humans in it for one, and no other story has had men. Um, yeah, yeah, and not only that, but it, it, it's, it, it is the only story that even features men, I agree, um, but, uh, but it, it almost sort of, it, it, the way that it acknowledges the human's point of view, right, um, the fact that the story kind of shifts to the, the perspective of the man, um, briefly, in that story, is, 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 or at least gives us his perspective. Is, is another thing, Yana, that really makes it stick out to me. I agree, um, and uh, good. Philip makes a really excellent point that it's interesting that Dandelion's not familiar with this one, right? Yeah, and, and Philip, of course, we do have to remember that the story of Rasby Woof is told by Bluebell and not by Dandelion, um, so it's the only non-Dandelion story of El Herrera that we get, and you know, one wonders to, to what extent. The fact that the story of Rousby Wu feels different, is that a kind of narrative success on Richard Adams' part, right? Because he's, he's, he's giving it from a different speaker, from Bluebell instead of Dandelion, who's been our narrator of, of El Herrera to this point. And so therefore, we get a story that looks and feels different, because of course it would look and feel different, because it's, it's coming from a different uh, teller. Um, possibly. And of course, the fact that the, the funniest and most outrageous story uh, uh, that, we, that we get comes from Bluebell also seems rather in character of Bluebell as, as, as we know him. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's, that's certainly, I think, an uninteresting way to, um, um, to look at it in that way. Um, Chris Swank has an interesting observation, too. She says, the other stories feel as if they take place in a mythic time. Rousby Woof feels very much set in the present. Um, yeah, Chris, I think especially the interaction with men is, for me, the thing that really, that really does that. I mean, but, but you're right. I mean, it, even apart from the human in the story, it's the setting too, right? Think of the difference between the gardens of of uh, of of I almost, uh, King Darzan. I almost said King Kelfazin, which is the marshes, not the king. Um, think of the gardens of King Darzan compared to the very mundane wire um, fenced garden with the uh, with the, with the you know the the guard dog that we get in Rousby Woof. Um, you're right, Chris, that that doesn't have any of those elements of sort of mythic air to it, right? Until that air of 
you know, uh, that sort of air of mythic significance is imposed upon it, right, fraudulently by El Herrera, um with the story of, uh, you know, the fairy wog dog, or in the persona of the fairy wog dog. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is different. It is different in that way. What I want to... What I want to look at, and you know, and Chris, we, we might want to come back and think about that more a little bit later. I um, I'm not going to fool myself into thinking I'm going to get back to this tonight. I, I probably won't, but we will take it up at the beginning of next time. What I do want to come back to um, is the way that that sort of myth and legends come back into play in this story, especially at the end, not just in the epilogue, but even in the final chapters. Um, so we're going to be we're we're, we're definitely going to talk about that, and I'm sure you know having discussed what we have discussed and having read many of the books that we've read together, I'm sure many of the passages that I'm going to that, that I want to talk about, you know which ones I mean, and, and and I'm sure they jumped out at you as we were reading. Um, but uh, but anyway, I can say I don't I don't uh, I'm not kidding myself into thinking I'm pro probably going to get to those tonight, but we'll see. Um, but Chris, I do want to think about your point about the register of Rousby Woof in the context of what we see. Um, later on, so just kind of a, as a note to, 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 to try to remember to think about that again. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Tom has an interesting parallel. Uh, Tom Hillman, always good for an interesting classical parallel. He says, it's like the difference between the tales of Odysseus wandering um, and his arrival back in Ithaca. The tales of him wandering are him in fairy, and the tales in Ithaca are him in this world. Um, yes, yeah, I mean, the story of, of, of him in the hall with the suitors of Penelope um, versus, you know, his adventures with, you know, the, 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 the Cyclopes and, and, and uh, you know, so and Charybdis. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, I think, an interesting uh, parallel. Um, again, worth coming back to, especially, Tom, since one of the things that we get there, right, in the Odyssey, is again the storyteller voice, right? The fact that we hear about almost all of those early voyages from Odysseus's own mouth, right, as storyteller, not as first-hand narration. Um, so that's kind of a that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, good, good. Okay, so let's. Uh, let, what I want to focus on, because um, I still think. Even though it's a, it is a very different kind of story, I still think that there are a lot of things that we can learn um, from the story, and and in particular, I think it's worth putting a little bit of pressure on the story of Rousby Woof, um, despite the fact that it does seem different, that it does seem more distant from the narrative, that it's set apart from the other Alacrera stories in these ways that we've been discussing. But I don't want to. But, but it still seems to me to be relevant, indeed, even more pressingly relevant than some of the other stories. And we've been looking at the way in which the other stories are kind of connected with the narrative, often sort of indirectly, but 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 that it has had a, a kind of relevance to the story as it's gone along. The story of Rasby Woof becomes very relevant, right? It becomes woven into the story um, itself. In fact, it becomes used as as a vehicle. Right for the message from El Herrera, so um, it's clear that this story is relevant uh, in a very pressing way to the story as it moves on. So, how, why, what, what else can we see from it? it? It seems worth looking at a little bit more closely, and it's also a lot of fun. Um, what I want to be thinking of in the context here then is to be looking at 
sort of rabbit culture versus dog culture, right? We get a very, um, you know, this sort of clear lines between rabbits, you know, between El Herrera and Rabscuttle, and, uh, and Rasby Woof clearly on the other side of a pretty major cultural divide, right? Um, so I want to be looking at how, not at what, not what directly we're told about rabbit culture in this story, but what the story shows us and how it depicts it about dogs in general, and Rasby Woof in particular, Rasby Woof as representative dog, um, and what indirectly we can learn about rabbits and rabbit culture from that uh, depiction. Um, Kareta uh, makes a really great initial point where she says it's interesting to see that the story invites us to laugh at a dog when dogs are formally introduced as deadly and scary. It's true. From the first time we almost met a dog or heard of a dog, uh, remember right when they were crossing the end board on that first morning after they left uh, the Sandalford Warren, dogs are, are, are like the pretty much like the apex elo, I mean man of course, or the apex elo really, but um, but other than man, there's there's really nothing bigger and scarier than dogs um, that can hunt rabbits. They're 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 the top of the line um, as far as uh, as far as the predators go. So you're right, Karita. It is I think interesting and important that they are turned around um, and made you know the objects of of, of ridicule uh, in this story. Um, so let's look at uh, let's look at what what we learn in this story about the nature of dogs. Here's our first uh, nature of dogs moment here. Sorry, just gotta get one thing adjusted here. Okay. All right. Now, Rousby Woof was the man's dog, and he was the most objectionable, malicious, disgusting brute that ever licked a man's hand. He was a big, woolly sort of animal with hair all over his eyes, and the man kept him to guard the vegetable garden, especially at night. Rousby Woof, of course, did not eat vegetables himself, and anyone might have thought that he would be ready to let a few hungry animals have a lettuce or a carrot now and then, and no questions asked, but not a bit of it. Rousby Woof used to run loose from evening till dawn the next day, and not content with keeping men and boys out of the garden, he would go for any animals he found there, rats, rabbits, hares, mice, even moles, and kill them if he could. The moment he smelled anything in the nature of an intruder, he would start barking and kicking up a shine, although very often it was only this foolish noise which warned a rabbit and enabled him to get away in time. Okay, now what do you... What do you... What do we get here? What what is what what's interesting about the way sort of the whole you know Rousby Woof as representative of the dog perspective uh, is 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 shown to us here? I think uh, this is this is one of my favorite passages. Obviously, I chose it right, um, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, Arthur says clearly not told by someone who would recognize the phrase "man's best friend." Well, or maybe they would, Arthur. Right? That seems to be that seems to be part of the indictment here. Right, most disgusting brute that ever licked a man's hand. Um, I mean, even notice the assumption, right? The sort of the moral assumption that underlies this description of um, to use uh, to use Strawberry's Wonderful World animality, right? Um, this sort of solidarity among animals, at least where men are concerned, 
right? I mean, you know, animal, it might not be, you know, we, we, we looked at this earlier, you know, back in book two, that it's not a natural thing for animals of different kinds to stick together, right? You know, and, and the, you know, the whole point of the story of the trial of, of Elapera was sort of pointing out the unusualness uh, uh, of the way that Elapera works with the animals. But uh, um, so, so it's, it's not that animals have a natural... But, you know, when man is on the other side, I mean, clearly... Right, and notice the 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 almost incomprehension. You know, here here I agree with you there in that sense, Arthur. The almost incomprehension of what on earth is Rousby Wolf's motivation? He doesn't eat vegetables. Why does he care if other animals come in the garden? Is it any of his business? Right, and and I mean, you know, you'd think he would, you know, let hungry animals, you know, have a carrot now and then, and no questions asked. Not a bit of it. Right. What's being described, one would not think, certainly from the human point of view, this is not a vice, this is a virtue, right? Rousby Woof is a good dog. He's a very good dog. Um, he's very loyal and faithful uh, to his human. Um, and that, um, exactly, as, as, uh, as Lee says, that he's criticized for loyalty and honor, exactly. Um, and, um, and that's... Uh, that's that's a really interesting point, right? So his 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 loyalty, not to say, Sarah, I agree with the significance of your word choice there. His servility uh, to the man is something which comes uh, will come in for mockery later on, but comes in for not even criticism so much as as sort of um, um, astonishment here, right? Like what almost incomprehension. What is he doing? Why would he do this? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Philip points out sort of the irony of him focusing on 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 uh, on not feeding but killing the other animals, right? Yeah, exactly. The sort of the op the exact opposite of that sort of solidarity. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. Um, and Nick, interesting point. He said, notice that he does keep men and boys. Uh, away from the garden, and not just animals. Um, yeah, and notice also the tone of that, as if that's expected, as if that's okay, right? Um, not content with keeping men and boys out of the garden, he would go for any animals he found there, too. That's, like, where the astonishment comes in, right? Okay, like, you keep a dog to keep out the other men. All right, well, yeah, I mean, because, you know, men just mess everything up, right? I mean, you let a man loose and he's going to rip up the, you know, the whole countryside. So, uh, so yeah, obviously you got to keep men out of your garden, right? Uh, it goes without saying, but animals too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Tom asks an interesting question. Tom Hillman says, isn't this why the dog is the most feared predator and not just his size? I don't know, because the only times, I think of the times that dogs have actually been spoken about or represented in this, uh, in this story so far, and most of the time it's when they're on their own, like the dog um, that they saw by the Enborn was, was, was loose, right? Um, and that's when they're really dangerous. Um, the only other incident, I mean, they don't feature strongly in the story up until this point. And uh, the only other instance I can think of, of an actual depiction of a dog, is um, the dog guardians 
of Elahera in his trial. They're like the bailiffs, remember, in the trial? Um, and uh, so in that sense, Tom, they are, you know, enforcers. They are um, their <clears throat> sort of ferocity in loyalty, you know, as, uh, as enforcers of the will of, you know, the great. Um, that is a little bit more consistent with what we see here. Um, but, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of other references to dogs. Uh, remember Fiverr's disdain for the carrying of the carrots back to the great burrow in, uh, in Cowslip's burrow when he says they look like dogs, right? Um, yeah, now cats, uh, Michael Chaskowski uh, is contrasting with cats. Yeah, cats are, um, uh, are, um, Cats are free agents, right? I mean, they're always found in farms, but there is none of that sort of question of loyalty, right? Even the insults that Hazel throws at that cat to get him to chase him, right? Um, you know, he calls him a backdoor saucer scraper, but that's different from, you know, the most disgusting brute that ever licked a man's hand, right? Um, that is to say, like, you get your food handed out to you by men, but not like you are servile, to men, because nobody ever really accused a cat of being servile uh, to men. Um, uh, Philip, that's wonderful. Philip Lords uh, calls the dogs the Auslafa of the animal kingdom. Yes, both in the sense of being like the heavies and the enforcers, as well as being a dirty little brute like Hafsa, uh, conceivably. Um, treacherous to animal kind. Um, there's a sense in which they're they're sort of traitors. They've gone over to the other side. Um, the one sense in which it does seem that animals as a whole have solidarity is against men. So the fact that the dogs don't just live with men, cats live with men too, but actually serve them, actually are loyal to humans more than they are loyal to other animals, is um, that that's what's sort of appalling. That's what be, seems to be depicted against one of the things I get from this passage is that sense of of betrayal, right? Um, that dogs are, are 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 not just you know sort of foolish and maybe a little dumb, um, but that they're quislings. They're they're like traitors to to, to animal kind. Um, well, let's look at the uh, the beginning of Elahera and his uh, to his his encounter with Rasby Wolf. But hardly had they crossed the top of the garden and got among the cabbages than Rouseby Woof had winded them, and down he came, barking and yelping, and they were lucky to get out in time. Dirty little beasts, shouted Rouseby Woof. Ho, 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 how dare you come snow, snow, snowing round here. Get out, 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 out. Again, Adams is so brilliant at uh, using words to convey the sounds that animals make. Uh, it's just so awesome. Um, Contemptible brute, said Elahera, as they scurried back to the warren with nothing to show for all their trouble. He's really annoyed me. I don't know yet how it's going to, to be done, but by frith and inlay, before this frost thaws, we'll eat his cabbages inside the house and make him look a fool into the bargain. Okay. Um... Notice, again, Elahera's reaction. Um, he's really annoyed me. Remember, like, what are the things that have motivated Elahera in the past, right? We've seen him 
be distressed on behalf of his people. We've seen him react in personal fear, as he did at the beginning when he was trying to tunnel into the hill to avoid Lord Frith uh, and the other and the newly made Elil. Um, at the beginning, we have seen him um, act in anger. Uh, an outrage again, primarily at the danger to his people when the wires were being set um, on Hufsa's information, uh, or uh, when uh, when the rabbits were being forced to live in the marshes of Kelfazin. Here, um, he's uh, here. He is annoyed, right? Um, He's annoyed by the way that Rasbiwoof treats them, right? And he calls him, he dismisses him as a contemptible brute. Again, not just not a malicious brute, not a, um, uh, you know, the, he was, um, we've seen him have several different kinds of enemies, not just the Elil in general, but other other opponents. Um, but <clears throat> Rasbiwoof is contemptible, and his determination is not only to beat him, right, to eat his cabbages inside the house, right, that is to to most, as, as thoroughly as possible, defeat Rousby Woof's um, vigilance, right, but also to make him look a fool into the bargain. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Carolyn Morehouse says the description of Rousby Woof seems to be an old English sheepdog. I agree. The hair in front of the eyes always made me picture him to be a sheepdog. Um, uh, Carolyn says they were sheep drovers moving the sheep to market and not really watchdogs. Uh, Adam really captures their behavioral traits. They are on average empty-headed these days. Um, yes, this uh, I, I I can very easily believe this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Mark Willey says one of the uh, you know one of the important things here um, is the great mystery and contempt for domestication. Animals that are domesticated are no longer animals. Um, yeah, now Mark, that's mi mingled with pity, right? With the hutch rabbits. I mean, it's interesting that they they do definitely identify the hutch rabbits um, as animals and even indeed as potential breeding stock for the war, and as in fact they become. Um, you know, Clover, who bears the first litter, and it's Clover's, some of Clover's um, uh, uh, kittens who are being raised uh, and trained uh, by Captain Bigwig at the end. But, nevertheless, um, but you're right, there is the, the, the impact of man on animals, um, the way in which animals are rendered unnatural, um, the way in which men sort of screw up everything, right? Um, there's a way in which, although they've been treated kindly, and certainly although Clover and Haystack and the other Hutch Rabbits are not complicit with the man, nothing like as complicit as Rousby Woof, of course, they're more victims of the humans uh, than anything else. And, and the emphasis is on sort of, in a sense, what's been done to them, right? By taking rabbits and making them domesticated, they've now they, you know, all of their instincts are gone, and they don't know how to take care of themselves, and they're really kind of helpless. And um, and this is all, you know, sort of like a little strange and mysterious to uh, to the Watership Down rabbits. Um, anyway, all of these things are, uh, are 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 again things that the man has done to them. Has taken rabbits and made them unrabbitly, 
right, has made them unnatural. And of course, remember, Woundwort was domesticated briefly too, right? He grew up um, in the cage of a man, um, and he was rendered unnatural. Uh, he certainly didn't turn out to be particularly natural either, right, though, in a rather different way. Um, uh, good. Thomas Johnson makes a wonderful point um, that we should understand Ella Herrera's branding of Rasby Woof as a, as a contemptible brute in the context of Rasby Woof's own accusation of Ella Herrera and Rabscuttle, as, as, as Thomas says, by calling the rabbits dirty little beasts, Rasby seems to make a distinction between other animals and himself. He seems to think of himself not only as a servant to humans, but as practically human himself. He views his domestication as a matter of pride. Yes, there is that sense of, th there's a line, right? There's a line, you know, and, and the line is definitely between animal and human, right? And Rousby Woof, unlike cats, cats don't identify themselves on the other line. They're still animals, right? Dogs, or Rousby Woof anyway, he's on the other side, right? He's, he's, he thinks of himself as on the human side of the line. Not that he imagines himself to be a human exactly, but, but exactly, Thomas, you said it better than I. Um, that he, uh, he's, he's, he, he's affiliated with humans, and therefore... Because he's looking across that boundary line at the animals, he's looking down on them. Whereas, on the rabbit side of the line, they're looking down on him for being over there, right? And that does seem to be a really important point. One of the things I would, I would come back, you know, sort of in contrast to the, 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 the two dogs that sort of are the bookends um, for dogs in this story, that is the dog by the river Enborn at the beginning and the, 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 the Nuthanger Farm dog um, at the end, Neither one of them are on the other side of the human-animal line, right? They are owned by humans. They live, but the the Nuthanger Farm dog is acting like an animal. He's not like Rasby Wolf, right? He's not thinking like a human. He's not acting primarily out of loyalty to human and against animals. Um, he is attacking. He is attacking them. He's hunting rabbits and killing rabbits, but only like Elil. Well, not exactly like Elil. More wastefully, right? He doesn't just kill and eat and then go away. Um, he kills a whole bunch just for fun. Um, so in that way, he's more unpredictable and more destructive. Um, but at the same time, again, he's not acting like Rasby Woof. He's not acting from sort of human motivations. Um, though you're right, Philip, in being more wasteful in his killing, he is being more like man. That's true. Um, but... Um, uh, but anyway, though, Thomas, you're, you're right that it is interesting that the Nuthanger farm dog doesn't seem to speak, uh, you know, even the, the, the hedgerow vernacular. We don't get any indication of any language. The cats can speak with them. Um, the, you know, the, we, we, we get that, you know, in the same language and, you know, the same, uh, um, the same dialect in which they can speak with Kehar. There's no indication that the Nuthanger farm dog understands them. Um, but anyway, he is acting, as Mark Willie says, out of instinct um, when he chases them, again, like an animal, not like a human being. And I do think that that's an important point and one thing that makes Rasby Woof really quite different. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, okay. Uh, more. More on the, um, uh, the nature of dogs to the fairy wog dog. Tricks, Rosby Woof, said Ella Hera. Ah, I see you do not know me, but how should you? 
Listen, faithful, skillful hound, I am the fairy wogdog, messenger of the great dog spirit of the east, Queen Dripslobber. Far, far in the east her palace lies. Ah, Rouseby Woof, if only you could see her mighty state, the wonders of her kingdom, the carrion that lies far and wide upon the sands, the manure Rouseby Woof, the open sewers. Oh, how you would jump for joy and run nosing all about. Rasby Woof came up to the fence, and Elohera pushed the rubber nose into the crack and moved it about. Rasby Woof stood close, sniffing. Noble ratcatcher, whispered Elohera, it is indeed I, the fairy wogdog, sent to honor you. Oh, fairy wogdog, cried Rasby Woof, dribbling and piddling all over the gravel. Oh, what elegance, what aristocratic distinction. Can that really be decayed cat that I smell, with the delicate overtone of rotten camel? Ah, the gorgeous east. What on earth's camel, said Bigwig. I don't know, replied Dandelion, but it was in the story when I heard it, so I suppose it's some creature or other. Okay, um... Tom immediately asks, from whom would any rabbit have heard about a camel? Right? Um, exactly. That camel interlude is really interesting. Right? Um, it's fascinating because it gives us a glimpse of sort of the legendary history of this story. Right? It was in the story when I heard it, so I suppose it's from some creature or other. Um, and uh, this is an error, isn't it, by the way? I think this is a mistake. It's Dandelion who says that as if Dandelion is speaking, but it's not Dandelion who's telling this story. I think that's actually an error uh, in the story. But anyway, um, uh, uh, but yet it's accurate, right? Where did they get it from? Somebody, somewhere down, you know, we get this glimpse of this story being passed on from generation to generation of rabbit, and that one detail has survived in all of these retellings, the delicate overtone of rotten camel, but of course the association between camel and the gorgeous east is an accurate one, right? Um, where did that come from? I love the, you know, the way in which this interjection almost inescapably brings up that question, right? It leads us to ask that question, how do they know about camels? Um, and yet, uh, and yet, of course, we're not we're not really given an answer. So, uh, the way in which this invites us to sort of think and to speculate about the origin of these rabbit stories, um, uh, anyway, um, yeah. Oh, Nancy, am I? I am misremembering, aren't I? I messed up earlier, didn't I? It's it's not Bluebell who tells this story. I'm, now I'm getting confused. It is, you're right. It is Dandelion who tells the story. It's me who's making the mistake. Right? Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Yes, no, I was wrong before. Bluebell is the one who's telling this. I that was in my mind because Bluebell is the one telling the story in the burrow, which we're going to get to. We're going to get to that tonight, I promise. Um, yes, 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 that's right. Okay. 
Thank you. Thank you for clearing up my own my own mistake and confusion. I was actually thinking about tonight's reading instead of uh, instead of last time. Right. It is Dandelion Story, but remember, I did talk a little bit because I used it in the uh, title for la you know the the opening of the story and the ties the title for the last class, um, the big rabbit, small rabbit, and talking about that really unusual rhetorical flourish that we get um, at the beginning of the story, which really sort of shows Dandelion as he says he's experimenting. He's never told this before, and he's really wanting. To, to sort of bring it out and uh, um, and and give a shot at at at, at telling it. Um, thank you, Nancy, for reminding me of that. Um, okay, now more. What else do we learn about dogs in this passage? What else do we see? Of course, here here's when the mockery begins to come in, right? I love Queen Drip Slobber. Uh, that's a marvelous name for the for the great dog spirit of the East. Um, yeah, uh, exactly, Arthur. The the way that dogs glory in disgusting things, as Philip Lord is pointing out, the manure in sewers. Um, now, I don't know what you think. This seems to me the implication here is: <laughs> remember, dogs are on the other side, right? The dog is contemptible. Mostly because, again, he's crossed the line, right? He's, he's uh, you know, you'd think he'd act like a, a decent animal, but, but no, n not a bit of it, right? He's, uh, um, he's, he acts in this sort of, in, with these inexplicably, you know, human-oriented motivations, right? Um, and that makes him contemptible. But there's a sense in which, by doing that, dogs are just sort of, sinking to their natural level, right? That there's something naturally contemptible about dogs anyway um, that makes them so prone uh, to be the, the servile hand lickers of men. Um, and they're glorying in the, uh, uh, in the, 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 the disgusting things. I mean, the idea of, you know, the gorgeousness of her estate being depicted as, you know, carrion lying far and wide, manure, open sewers. Um, these are the things that Elohera imagines, and of course, rightly, as we learn in the story, um, are, are most going to appeal to an excited dog. Um, this, is, uh, this is the idea of splendor to a dog, and it just sort of shows how naturally contemptible the dog is. But again, I, I can't separate that from the kind of um, um, the kind of you know initial indictment of Rousby Woof and his affiliation with men. Um, it's uh, you know this the the way in which um, that whole idea of the, the 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 loyalty of the dog to the human is made to seem consonant, you know, with this sort of fundamentally. Um, uh, you know, sort of repulsive nature, of, but but absurdly, comically repulsive uh, nature. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And, and Josh uh, Evans wants to bring it back to the camel, uh, and I think it's good. Uh, he says, he does the camel edition uh, give the story a certain authenticity? The story has a truth basis because a dog might have heard of a camel. Um, yeah, yeah, it does have a kind of a truth basis, right? Especially since, again, we as readers know that it's right. Right, so um, there is a sense, Josh. In fact, I always felt that, that that to be sort of the strongest impact of the of of, of the camel interjection, um, and that is, it's a kind of evidence to us as readers that these stories are legit in some sense, anyway. Right, um, because although this is something that a rabbit couldn't know, it 
apparently know something that we we thought they wouldn't have known it, but apparently they do know it in some sense, right? These particular local rabbits don't really know what camels are, um, but uh, um, uh, but yeah. So anyway, uh, and Nancy makes an excellent point too. Part of the distinction here. Um, is not just between dog and rabbit, but between herbivore and carnivore. Um, remember Rabscuttle's reaction to the meat that they found that fell off the back of the truck, right? literally uh, uh, fell off the back of the truck. Um, you know, meat, disgusting stuff, right? Um, so yeah, the carrion that lies far and wide, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's gross, but yeah, Nancy, I mean, all meat is carrion to an herbivore, right? Um, so... Um, uh, so yeah, I think that that is a, that's another line, although it's that's clearly not the full the whole explanation, right? Um, because you know weasels, stoats, foxes, they wouldn't be talked about in this way. They wouldn't, you know, a, a, a fox would not be targeted with this story uh, in the same way that a dog is. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Good. Karita is also pointing out um, how prominently the story emphasizes Rousby Woof's vanity uh, and sort of silliness, right? That he believes he is important enough to be honored uh, by a queen and visited by a fairy. The fact that he's so easy to take in in this way um, uh, is part of like it's it's not just that he's contemptible; it's that that he is the delightful combination of contemptible and. Um, uh, uh, and and proud, right? Contemptible and vain, um, and, uh, and and that's what that 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 really sort of sets him apart. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, and uh, Nick, I agree. Uh, Nick Marazzo says it seems that uh, Rousby Woof displays his refinement by detecting both decayed cat and camel. Um, yes, yes, that there's something slightly sort of boastful. In that, right? Um, okay, all right, last one. Then we'll have to uh, regretfully leave Rousby Wolf behind. <clears throat> I perceive, honest friend, said Elahrera, that you found the meat as swiftly as though it had been a rat. The house is safe and all is well. Now hark, I shall return to the queen and tell her of all that has passed. It was her gracious purpose that if you showed yourself worthy tonight by trusting her messenger, she would herself send for you and honor you. Tomorrow night she will be passing through this land on her way to the Wolf Festival of the North, and she means to break her journey in order that you may appear before her. Be ready, Rousby Woof. Oh, fairy wog dog, cried Rousby Woof. What joy it will be to grovel and abase myself before the queen. How humbly shall I roll upon the ground. How utterly shall I make myself her slave. What menial cringing will be mine. I will show myself a true dog. I do not doubt it, said Elahrera, and now farewell. Be patient and await my return. Absolutely, my favorite line. Uh, uh, what menial cringing will be mine, I will show myself a true dog. Um, <laughs> just awesome. Um, uh, yeah, and, and exactly, Neil, that's a true dog, right? Menial cringing is the essence of dogishness. Right, uh, you know, and, and again, there's so you see the the, the sort of double-edged satire there, right? Um, the rabbit 
is proud of being a rabbit, right? Elohera is great and knows that he's great. Remember the whole attitude of Elohera, which led him into trouble in the first um, in the first story, but which doesn't die at the end of the first story, right? Um, the rabbits remember the promise of Lord Frith, uh, you know, that they will never be destroyed. The rabbits know, you know, they're really they're not the strongest, they're not the best. Well, but they kind of are the best, right? I mean, there's this sense of superior, this pride in being a rabbit. Um, so that, again, that, that sort of double-edged satire of, on the one hand, showing the, 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 the ridiculous, you know, the menial cringing uh, of the dog, you know, what it means to be a true dog, uh, and yet the, the, the ridiculous vanity of the dog at the same time that it's so proud of being what it is and yet what it is is so pathetic and contemptible um, yes yes um, good as uh, Carita said he's vain enough to believe that a queen would go out of her way to honor him but low enough to grovel and abase himself and be proud of groveling um, yes yes exactly um, Ethan uh, Pyle says the fact that it's coming from Rouse Woof himself makes it that much more authentic absolutely um, yeah yeah, um, yeah, very good. Um, Yana points out that he finds it adorable that Rousby Woof is, in the end, left to believe it was all true. Uh, that he, never, he never finds out that he's been duped and is proud of what happened. Yeah, Yana, I find that a really fascinating dynamic at the end. Remember the the oath, the vow that Elohera swears, as he does indeed swear a vow at the beginning of this story. The vow that he swears is not only to defeat Rousby Woof, but to make him look a fool in the bargain, right? But notice, he does not actually expose Rousby Woof to ridicule, not publicly or anything, right? His his goal is not to shame Rousby Woof, and indeed he doesn't achieve the shaming of Rousby Woof. Rousby Woof, far from being ashamed, chagrined, or publicly humiliated, feels proud of what he did, right? He looks back with fondness on that night his whole life, believing that he accomplished a great thing, and had a, a, a you know a wonderful honor bestowed upon him. He was unfortunately not able to meet Queen Dripslobber herself, but yet you know this great privilege was uh, was vouchsafed to him. In in, in Woof's own experience, he's not been disgraced. He has no idea he's been disgraced, but he has. He has been made a fool of in the eyes of the rabbits, who apparently are all that matter. Right? This he's the he's the hero or the anti-hero. <clears throat> of this Elohera story for all time, so rabbits are going to be telling and retelling this story and laughing at, at Rousby Woof, and so therefore Elohera has succeeded in his vow. But but again, you see, um, it's it's the, the sort of lack of spitefulness. Uh, you know, Josh, I do think that that's a really important point. Um, you know, there are a lot of stories. I mean, I think um, you know, for instance, of uh, of a lot of. You know, like medieval fablio. You know, the stories like uh, like Chaucer's Miller's Tale. You know, like uh, you know, uh, red hot plowshares up the butt kind of stories. Um, you know, where you've got like revenge being taken. Like you know, oh, he did this to us, or like the Miller's Tale or the Reeves Tale, even better. He did this to us, so we're going to get back at him, and we're going to do something even worse to him. Um, very often those stories end up in public ridicule. Like, I'm going to shame him in public. Uh, you know, these that 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 kind of dynamic is really common, and it sounds like that's sort of the direction that we're going. Where Elokhara at the beginning says, "I'm not only going to achieve the end that I want to achieve, namely to get food, uh, you know, in this very very cold winter, 
but I'm going to, uh, uh, but I'm going to to to, to shame that I'm I'm going to make a fool of the dog. But again, he doesn't do it. Um, he doesn't do it publicly. Or rather, it's only among the rabbits that Rasby Woof is shamed. And there's a sense in which, well, that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what Rasby Woof thinks of himself because the fact is, you know, he's he's, you know, what. Was he the most objectionable, malicious, disgusting brute that ever licked a man's hand, right? Um, so who cares what he thinks or knows? That's not what matters, right? It is among, you know, sort of the council of animals and among them the council of rabbits that uh, where his reputation sort of really matters. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay, um, well, we must move on, but not... Um, not too far along. Let's move forward, uh, well, almost into today's reading, um, with the message of Ella Herrera. Let's look at that moment so soon afterwards um, when the story of Rasby Woof becomes the vehicle for the final great prophetic inspiration that Fiverr is given. This is, of course, during the siege. Hazel is speaking. Aren't you working? He asked listlessly to Fiverr. Remember, he's listless. This is right in the moment when Hazel is beginning to feel despair. You know, he feels, on the one hand, almost angry, right? This is not the proper end to the clever track that they had run, right? Um, it shouldn't end like this. Um, but also despair. You know, there's nothing they can do. Um, uh, you know, he believes that they're all going to die, and he's feeling guilty for leaving them, uh, for leaving them, uh, you know, in that, and, and, you know, leading them along the path which led them here uh, in the end. And there is, of course, a sense in which Hazel, I think, is not being too hard on himself. He's quite right about that. Remember, Holly warned him, right? It was Hazel's idea. Uh, it was Hazel's insistence to say, no, let's go and raid Ephrapha and steal the does out of there. Now, again, I'm not saying it was a wrong idea, but it was very much Hazel's idea to bring the wrath of Ephrapha down upon them, whereas Holly was telling them, look, it's going to be bad if we do, right? So, so again, you know, uh, Hazel's, um, uh, Hazel's guilt about what's happening there is certainly not something that he's just, uh, you know, I, again, I don't think it's, 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 it's inappropriate, and he's really kind of at the bottom of that here. No, replied Fiverr. I'm listening. To the digging, you mean? No, not the digging. There's something I'm trying to hear, something the others can't hear. Only I can't hear it either, but it's close. Deep. Leaf drip deep. Leaf drift deep. I'm going away, Hazel. Going away. His voice grew slow and drowsy. Falling. But it's cold. Cold. The air in the dark burrow was stifling. Hazel bent over Fiverr, pushing the limp body with his nose. Cold, muttered Fiverr. How, 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 how cold. There was a long silence. Fiverr, said Hazel. Fiverr, can you hear me? Suddenly a terrible sound broke from Fiverr, a sound at which every rabbit in the warren leaped in dreadful fear, a sound that no rabbit had ever made, that no rabbit had the power to make. It was deep and utterly unnatural. The rabbits working on the far side of the wall crouched terrified. One of the does began to squeal. Dirty little beasts, yelped Fiverr. How, how dare you? Get out, 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 out! And it's very clear 
that Fiverr is not just quoting. Fiverr is actually barking. The sound of a dog's barking emerges from Fiverr in this moment. Um, uh, and it's equally clear, I think, in the context that his, the first time he says it, how, 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 how cold, um, he's transitioning into that, right? That's still Fiverr's voice, right? He's, and we can, so we can see him falling, right? He's falling into that. He's sort of losing himself. And it's the first stage of the sort of transmission of the message that's coming through, but it's still within his own voice. And then it completely transforms him and he makes this sound that no rabbit had the power to make. Um, but of course the message from El Ajera is two-parted, right? Fiverr hears it and Fiverr is the transmitter of it and we've looked at other points in which Fiverr's sort of prophetic awareness comes upon him he'll say things and not remember saying them afterwards, right? Um, we've seen him, we saw him when he was pursuing Hazel um, after Hazel was shot being more um, uh, more deliberate, right? Him sort of seeking to try to pursue the uh, bloody rabbit that he saw in his vision through his dreams. We saw him sort of enter consciously into his dreams in that in that conversation he was having with the man by the by the message board, backed by the Sandalford Warren. Um, and uh, he, yeah, Carita, you're right. He seems to be more at the mercy of his visions in this moment. Absolutely, um, absolutely, I think he is. Um, Carita says that she uh, started to feel sorry for Fiverr in this moment as she hadn't done before. Um, I, yeah, I, I, th I think that there is a change here. We'll come back to that. Um, look at how this is discussed uh, afterwards. But yeah, um, Fiverr is, is... Something is happening to him which hasn't happened before. And I think that the, the bark emerging from him really sort of shows how utterly unnatural this is, right? That Those words are used to describe the sound, right? It was deep and utterly unnatural. But also, what is happening to Fiverr is utterly unnatural here. This is this goes beyond... Remember, like, the Threera talking about how, like, yeah, you know, there are some rabbits who have that kind of vision. Like, you know, it's 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 no... It's it's been known. Um, um, the Threera believes that it exists. This goes way beyond, you know... Uh, being, what was the phrase he used? An intuitive rabbit, right? That, that's a phrase that was used before. Fiverr's not just being intuitive, right? He's not even being a direct tra transmitter. He's being overridden in some way here, right? His very rabbitry is being overridden here. Um, and there does seem to be something more violent in that sense, I think, being done to Fiverr. Um, in, in this moment than we've seen before. As Philip points out, it nearly kills him. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, yeah, well, we'll come back to that too. But again, as I said, this is only half of the intervention by El Herrera, right? Half is the, um, the message that Fiverr speaks. The second is Hazel's reception of it. Shuddering, Hazel clawed at Fiverr's side. Wake, Fiverr, wake! But Fiverr was lying in a deep stupor. In Hazel's mind, green branches were straining in the wind. Up and down they, sw they swayed, thresh and ply. There was something, something he could glimpse between them. What was it? Water, he sensed, and fear. 
Then suddenly he saw clearly, for an instant, a little huddle of rabbits on the bank of a stream at dawn, listening to the sound of yelping in the wood above, and the scolding of a jay. If I were you, I shouldn't wait until night, Frith. I should go now. In fact, I, th I, th I think you'll have to. There's a large dog loose in the wood. There's a large dog loose in the wood. The wind blew. The trees shook their myriads of leaves. The stream was gone. He was in the honeycomb, facing Bigwig in the dark, across the motionless body of Fiverr. The scratching from above was louder and closer. The insight that Hazel is given into what the message means, right? And it's interesting to me that not only is this, you know, and as we were talking about sort of this most, the most complete <clears throat> sort of surrender of Fiverr to this message, the most, uh, you know, the, the greatest violence that's been done to Fiverr um, by those things from that other world, remember the language that Fiverr was using to describe them in that one passage we looked at. Um, it's also his least intelligible message, right? Nobody else in the Warren has the faintest idea what's going on, right? Not only do they not get the message, Right. Not only do, are they not inspired with, not only is Hazel the only rabbit in earshot of the unnatural barking emerging from Fiverr, not only is he the only rabbit who is inspired with the plan of how to save the Warren, nobody else even, it doesn't even register as a message, right? Everyone else is just absolutely terrified, right? Um, like Fiverr has just gone mad in some absolutely appalling new way, right? At a really inconvenient time. Um, that's that's all anybody else can see or hear. So again, it's not even just like Fiverr said something cryptic that nobody else understands, right? That's kind of happened before, right? But here, it's much more than that. Now, the very mode of his speaking is the thing which which puts him puts his utterance sort of outside of the comprehension. It's, it's not even like a candidate for comprehension, right? No one even understands that it's a but Hazel gets it, right? and it's clear that that's an intervention too. The vision that Hazel gets of them on the Endborn, the way in which his memory of that first morning away from Sandalford is made applicable to this moment in his mind. It's clear that that's every bit as supernatural a moment of inspiration as Fiverr's own barked message. Um, now, what about um, what about um, Rouse B. Wolf? Though it's not just a dog's bark, right? Um, it's Rouse B. Wolf barking, right? He's quoting Dandelion's story, um, and we see he's quoting it even before he slips completely into the vision. You know, the how 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 cold. Um, at first, it sounds like he's stammering, right? He's already kind of his his speech had become fragmentary already before that point. Um, so even though it was only you know it was like twenty five pages ago, we still might not remember. We we might you know when he's saying how 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 cold, we might not be thinking of Rasby Woof right away. Maybe we are. The how 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 is is very close. Um, but anyway, the, then the direct quotation, the dirty little beasts quotation brings us directly there. So, thinking of all the things that we saw in the story of Rousby Woof, why, how, how is it being, how is it being applied? 
why that story? Why that story? Why that quotation from that story? Um, yeah, Michael Toskowski points to uh, an interesting kind of paradox that now that uh, all the rabbits believe Fiverr in his visions, his visions and messages become less comprehensible. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, Thomas Johnson points out one clear common ground between them, uh, between the situation in Watership Down and uh, the story of Rousby Woof, that both are uh, examples of rabbits manipulating dogs, um, and clearly that's what Hazel needs uh, to save Watership Down. Good. Uh, Nancy Fosberg points another obvious uh, similarity is the protection of their territory. That's really interesting. Um, certainly that's how it's received by the Efrifins up above, right? Um, and the ones who are guarding the runs who are like, uh, there's some animal down there, right? And we're trespassing on, uh, uh, on that animal's um, ground, right? We're likely to be attacked if we go in by whatever that was that made that sound, which is not a rabbit. Um, good. And um, uh, Thomas Johnson points out how the dirty little beasts thing is also sort of a very Efrafin sentiment. Yeah, the antisocial little beasts, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. The kind of disdain for those that are smaller and weaker, um, for those that they see to be beneath them, that is a bit of an Efrafin trait, right? Um, certainly, uh, a, certainly a Woundwartian trait. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I like the the way in which sort of Fiverr quoting Rosby Woof there seems to me to work in a couple different ways, right? And it's interesting that you know um, Thomas and Nancy were both thinking about it kind of from different angles there, and I think that both of them work. That is, um, on the one hand. Um, because there are kind of two audiences for Fiverr's utterance, right? The primary audience, of course, is Hazel, and by accident, all the rest of the rabbits in Watership Down. Um, but the, the point of the utterance is not to frighten them. The point of the utterance is to communicate to Hazel. So a message like, think along the lines of manipulating dogs, <laughs> right, Thomas, as you were suggesting, um, is one thing, you know, and this this triggers, again, in what does not seem to be a natural flow of ideas, Hazel's own thoughts. But, of course, there's another audience, which is the Efrafins, who are guarding, and who, and indeed, the overhearing of the sound of this mysterious animal within the Warren is one of the things which contributes to the overall fear, this sort of growing, um, uh, you know, nearly, you know, sort of mythic terror that is beginning to um, grow within the hearts of the Efrafins towards the Watership Down rabbits. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, so, uh, I also love, well, that's uh, yeah, a little irrelevant, um, but, um, yeah, anyway, so, so, and, and again, they're also the, so, in as much as Fiverr is sort of speaking in the place of Rousby Woof, it's like, you know, Nancy, as you say, guarding territory, right? Um, it's a warning uh, and a contemptuous warning uh, to those who would 
seek to invade. Um, but it also, of course, within the context of that Warren who just heard the story of Rousby Woof, they're not going to hear in as much as they're able to retain their senses after hearing a direct quotation of Rousby Woof um, in, in Rousby Woof's own language, as it were. It's also an excellent reminder of the triumph of El Herrera, right? Um, uh, there's, I think, it, you know, the fact that an El Herrera story, and indeed one fresh in everybody's minds, is evoked here is, of course, another one of those sort of reminders, right, of the promise of Frith that the rabbits will never be destroyed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, I want to, of course, uh, I'm, I'm determined to go on and talk about Woundwort and Bigwig's confrontation tonight. That is going to happen no matter what else we do or don't get to. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to sort of finish out looking at the story of Fiverr um, because we're going to need to get back to that, and I want to. I want to. Um, I, I don't want to just totally leave it behind. Um, so let's uh, let's look at two other passages more briefly. I'm going to be totally efficient here. Um, this was always one of my favorite passages. Vervain advanced slowly across the floor. Even he could derive little satisfaction from the prospect of killing a Tharn rabbit half his own size in obedience to a contemptuous taunt. The small rabbit made no move whatever, either to retreat or to defend himself, but only stared at him from great eyes which, though troubled, were certainly not those of a beaten enemy or a victim. Before his gaze, Vervain stopped in uncertainty, and for long moments the two faced each other in the dim light. Then, very quietly, and with no trace of fear, the strange rabbit said, I'm sorry for you with all my heart, but you cannot blame us, for you came to kill us if you could. Blame you? answered Vervain. Blame you for what? For your death. Believe me, I am sorry for your death. Vervain in his time had encountered any number of prisoners who, before they died, had cursed or threatened him, not uncommonly with supernatural vengeance, much as Bigwig had cursed Woundwort in the storm. If such things had been liable to have any effect on him, he would not have been the head of the Auslifa. Indeed, for almost any utterance that a rabbit in this dreadful situation could find to make, Vervain was unthinkingly ready with one or other of a stock of jeering rejoinders. Now, as he continued to meet the eyes of this unaccountable enemy, the only one he had faced in all the long night's search for bloodshed, horror came upon him, and he was filled with a sudden fear of his words, gentle and inexorable as a falling of bitter snow in a land without refuge. The shadowy recesses of the strange burrow seemed full of whispering, malignant ghosts, and he recognized the forgotten voices of rabbits done to death months since in the ditches of Ephrafa. Let me alone, cried Vervain. Let me go! Let me go! This is such a cool moment. Um, first, Karita, as you say, Fiverr's pity on his enemies, right? His genuine pity he is speaking with prophetic authority, and it's a prophetic authority that Vervain recognizes. Vervain can hear, right, the truth in his words that he, Vervain, is going is, 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 is going to die, right? Um, but the fact that it's delivered with this genuine pity, right, um, makes it even more... Uh, even more moving, right? But, notice, there is clearly a supernatural element here, right? 
um, supernatural vengeance is referred to, right? Rabbits promising supernatural vengeance. You know, Frith sees you. Remember, that's the the thing, the curse that uh, the narrator is recalling here, right? Um, uh, you know, he calls on Frith to you know to smite Woundward and his his asla full of bullies. Um, that's how rabbits always talk, right? When they're being threatened and uh, tortured by uh, by Vervain, the most loathed officer in all of Ephrafa. And really, I mean, you know, of course, Woundward is the head of everything in Ephrafa, but Vervain is really kind of the poster child for like the twisted thing that um, the Ausla in general and sort of you know rabbits in Ephrafa have been made into under the influence of Woundward. Um, but what we see is he doesn't, he, Fiverr, doesn't, you know, threaten him with supernatural vengeance. He just does it, right? Um, he hears whispering malignant ghosts, and he, he recognizes the forgotten voices of rabbits done to death months since. He can hear the voice, the voices of his victims whispering all around him, right? And he's terrified and overwhelmed by this. Now, this could be just a purely psychological phenomenon, right? You know, Vervain is not a good guy, and he's done all these horrible things, and he's probably you know subconsciously guilty about that. So in this moment, he is, uh, you know, when he's confronted with the prospect uh, you know, of his uh, of his mortality, and is you know hears this strange rabbit speaking with such conviction about his imminent death, um, he, um, uh, you know, his 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 guilty conscience overwhelms him. That you know, that's a very sustainable reading, um, but I don't think so. I think th I, in my reading, there's something genuinely supernatural happening. And what I come back to is Fiverr's own words that they that he talks about. You know, the they who live in that other world that he has some kind of access to or some kind of encounter with. Right um, to the point where, in, as again in that conversation with Hazel at the foot of the down, when Hazel was recovering, um, you know where the, you know he's he's not always sure whether he's really here or whether he's there. Right? Remember the way that he talked about Silverweed? Right? That um, they had gotten him, Silverweed. Right? They don't give their secrets up for nothing. They had spoken to and spoken through Silverweed, and they had in some sense claimed Silverweed and Fiverr said, I'm sure he stopped running, right? Um, there's, so again, there's that, that sort of spiritual they, right? Um, and that, that Fiverr speaks of, and I don't see any reason to doubt that Fiverr knows what he's talking about um, when he talks about them. Um, and what has just happened to Fiverr? Um, is him being submerged in that other place, being taken to that other place um, more thoroughly, so thoroughly that his spirit leaves his body behind, it seems, um, such that he's, he is taken for dead by everybody, by his friends and enemies alike. Um, and, uh, you know, remember the reference at the very end of the story to Hazel leaving his body behind it? Kind of, doesn't it kind of sound like that's almost what Fiverr did? Right, that his spirit went away and left his body behind. Um, so the idea that when Fiverr returns, his spirit returns to his body, maybe he's not alone, doesn't seem to me at all unlikely uh, in the uh, in in the in the context. 
Um, yeah, Carolyn says, uh, the sound that he had made was not a sound that a power had the rabbit to make, and now Fiverr seems to be almost calling up the ghosts. Um, yeah, though, again, he's not summoning them, right? He's just, um, uh, he, he, they just are with him, right? They're there. It's like he returns in their company, like they haven't even really left him. Notice, remember how sort of like distracted Fiverr is from now on after this? Um, like, he's now even less in this world than he used to be. Um, uh, yeah, and Carita uh, says, you know, um, Vervain's, the thing that strikes her is Vervain's cry, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, that it doesn't sound like it's just a psychological thing. It's not just like, you know, I'm sorry for the terrible, but let me go, let me go. Um, he seems to be addressing the ghosts. He's addressing the spirits, um, not Fiverr. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, last, uh, last Fiverr passage. Since the night of the siege, Fiverr had spent much time alone, and even in the honeycomb, or at morning or e and evening sylphlay, was often silent and preoccupied. No one resented this. He looks right through you in such a nice friendly way, as Bluebell put it. For each in his own manner recognized that Fiverr was now more than ever governed, whether he would or no, by the pulse of that mysterious world which he had once spoken of which he had once spoken to Hazel during the late June days they had spent together at the foot of the down. It was Bigwig who said, one evening when Fiverr was absent from the honeycomb at story time, that Fiverr was one who had paid more dearly than even himself for the knight's victory over the Ephraphans. Yet to his doe, Vilthiril, Fiverr was devotedly attached, while she had come to understand him almost as deeply as Hazel ever had. Yeah, that sense that he is that he has paid a price. Um, Arthur uh, uh, Harrow can't help but remember Frodo after returning to the Shire. Um, it's not quite the same, Arthur. I mean, obviously, it's not. Quite, it's just not exactly the same. Big surprise there. Um, but. What I mean, other than the obvious ways in which it's different, is Frodo was wounded and his wounds couldn't fully heal, right? Fiverr's not exactly been wounded, um, but, but, but Arthur, I, do, I, I still do think the parallel is an interesting one because what, what seems to connect the two, to me, is both of them have made a sacrifice. Both of them have put themselves sort of in harm's way. Both of them have lost their own lives, their own peace, um, in order to do something that you know nobody uh, that nobody else could do. Uh, in order to 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 save everybody else, um, it's this passage more than anything else that makes me see, in retrospect, that moment. Um, of Fiverr, of, that, that, that moment of Fiverr's it, really as an act of sacrifice. Um, and, you know, because remember, um, you know, sort of going back for a minute to the beginning of that scene when Hazel and Fiverr are talking, it's something that comes over him, but it's not just something that overwhelms him immediately, right? Um, there is that element of, you know, he's trying to hear, um, but it's close, deep, leaf drift deep, 
I'm going away, Hazel, going away. That statement, I'm going away, um, on the one hand sounds like something is happening to me, right? But at the same time sounds like goodbye, I'm leaving. I'm going in search of that thing that is close but that I can't quite hear. I can tell that there's a message here that should be delivered, um, but it, I, I have to go after it. And he does so at a cost. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think that we have a moment of, that, that this is a real sacrifice um, for Fiverr and that he is genuinely damaged uh, as, as a consequence of it. But it is nice, Karita, that he does get a mostly happy ending. He does get a mate and, uh, and lives happily. Right, so in that way, it's it's it is very unlike Frodo. Um, one brief footnote on Fiverr's mate. Um, notice who gets a mate. There aren't enough does to go around initially, right? Um, so I mean, the, even after they come back from Africa, the the bucks outnumber the does in the Warren. Um, Fiverr, however, is one of the one that gets is one of the ones that gets a mate. In fact, he's one of the few, He's one, you know, she, and his mate is one of the first to have a litter, right? So it's almost like uh, Fiverr is, um, is uh, um, almost like deferred to, right? Remember we were talking about how, um, uh, how natural everybody was assuming, like naturally we're going to, you know, fight when it comes mating time, right? When the when when the when the does are ready for mutter, you know, as uh, Kehar would say, is all for is is all for fight, right? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Fiverr probably didn't kick anybody's butt in order to get Vilthril, right? I mean, he probably didn't face down Silver, uh, uh, you know, and knock the stuffing out of him in order to get his mate. Um, but again, it just sort of show. I think it's a really it's a very very subtle but really neat testimony. Um, to uh, the the different values um, of the watership down Warren. <laughs> Tom Owen says he just stared into his soul. <laughs> yes, you're going to look Fiverr in the eye and say, uh, you know, that uh, you're going to take his dough. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, sub sub note: um, Who's Heisenthal's mate? Heisenthal is heavily pregnant at the time of the uh, of, of the attack. Um, who's the father? Who's Heisenthal's mate? It never says. Does it ever say? I don't think it ever says. Did I miss it? Um, uh, uh, Ed, me too. Uh, Ed and I both guess that Bigwig is the father. Um, I'm thinking so too. Ed, the reason I really like that reading is it seems to me a beautiful way to sort of show the the. The way in which it's it's such an elegant reversal of that moment when Bigwig summons her down to his burrow as an Efferfin officer, right, uh, for mating. Um, you know the, the way that they meet is is in, in that pretext of that, you know, that horrible Efferfin violation of rabbit habits. Remember how how close to the doe's heart it was that ability to choose their own mates, right? And. Uh, um, but of course, we know that you know it's only a pretense, and 
the way that Heisenthal was so supportive to Bigwig and the way that he relied upon her, uh, the really you know sort of uh, adorable and heartwarming moments, you know, the pictures that we get of her, you know, the two of them, you know, huddling together for comfort and warmth in Ephrafa, you know, as co-conspirators. Um, I, I, um, uh, I, I too, we don't, are ever, we're never told, but I kind of hope that it's bigwig. Um, uh, but uh, Nancy, I think your point is an excellent one, too, um, that, uh, Nancy says she kind of like she kind of likes that Heisenthal's mate is her own business after the way that that choice was taken away in Africa. It is a really wonderful kind of statement of see yeah in Watership Down the does are free to choose their own mates right. Um, in fact, we're not even informed, we're on a need to know basis about that. Um, yeah, good as Chris uh, Swank says, um, she is she is a she is a singular doe. She's not just some buck's mutter, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I do really like that element of it too. Okay, but let's get to uh, uh, General Woundwort and Bigwig and the passage that makes me cry every time I read this book. Okay. General Woundwort. When it came to fighting, Woundwort was not given to careful calculation. Men and larger animals, such as wolves, usually have an idea of their own numbers and those of the enemy, and this affects their readiness to fight and how they go about it. Woundwort had never had any need to think like this. What he had learned from all his experience of fighting was that nearly, uh, sorry, that nearly always there are those who want to fight and those who do not, but feel they cannot avoid it. More than once he had fought alone and imposed his will on crowds of other rabbits. He held down a great warren with the help of a handful of devoted officers. It did not occur to him now, and if it had, he would not have thought it mattered, that most of his rabbits were still outside, that those who were with him were fewer than those on the other side of the wall, and that until Groundsel had got the runs open, they could not get out even if they wanted to. This sort of thing does not count among fighting rabbits. Ferocity and aggression are everything. What Woundwort knew was that those beyond the wall were afraid of him, and that on this account, he had the advantage. Um, this glimpse into the psych, you know, I, I, again, this is another great moment of Adams kind of reminding us, right? Um, reminding us of, don't forget, rabbit perspective. Don't start thinking about this like humans, right? Don't start, um, don't uh, project upon woundwort the same kind of calculation, the same kind of attitude um, that a human being might have under the circumstances, and not because humans are smart and rabbits are dumb, but because their outlooks are so very different. All that matters is the attitude, right? Um, he knows, it's, and, and also with Woundwort, notice, it's not just that he's bigger and stronger. It doesn't say many times he had imposed his will upon crowds of others because he was the biggest rabbit around and nobody could possibly compete with him. That's true, of course. He is the biggest rabbit around, but a crowd of rabbits could, right? Remember, his plan for fighting the massive unknown chief rabbit of this warren um, is that they're going to take him and they're going to pull him down from all sides, right? Even a big, strong rabbit could be set upon and killed by many rabbits at once. Um, it's not his physical um, attributes that give Woundward his advantage. It's his attitude. It's his fearlessness and his desire to fight. Um, there are those who want to fight and those that don't, but feel they can't avoid it. 
um, he wants to fight and to impose his will upon others, and therein lies his advantage. Um, and we have the beginning of their confrontation, and I love, here's Bluebell telling his story that I was referring to earlier, uh, and um, um, I, I love the interlacing of these things. It's, it's so fantastic. Again, if we, uh, you know, if, if ever we were having problems with sort of seeing how the stories of El Herrera apply, you know, apply, uh, this one's pretty clear. So then El Herrera said to the fox, Fox you may smell and fox you may be, but I can tell your fortune in the water. Suddenly Woundwort spoke. Flaley, he said, why do you want to throw your life away? I can send one fresh rabbit after another into this run if I choose. You're too good to be killed. Come back to Ephrafa. I promise I'll give you the command of any mark you like. I'll give you my word. Silflay Hraka, you blear hair, replied Bigwig, which I am not going to translate. Aha, said the fox. Tell my fortune, eh? And what do you see in the water, my friend? Fat rabbits running through the grass? Yes, yes. Very well, said Woolwort. But remember, Thlaley, you yourself can stop this nonsense whenever you wish. No, replied El Herrera. It is not fat rabbits that I see in the water, but swift hounds on the scent, and my enemy flying for his life. Um, uh, this, of course, appears to be uh, one of the stories that was requested um, back when... Bigwig overrode the committee and insisted upon the story of the Black Rabbit of Inlay. Um, uh, somebody requested El Herrera and the Fox in the Water, um, which seems to be the story that Bluebell is telling here in the background. Um, and um, again, the juxtaposition is delightful. Um, it show, you know, Bigwig is, is thinking, oh, it's a great idea for him to tell a story, right? Distract them and keep them calm. He's not explicitly thinking of the application of that story to himself. Um, but, of course, it has a delightful um, meaning, of course, which none of the rabbits can possibly know. Um, it's like we're getting a final message from El Herrera here, because, of course, it is swift hounds on the scent and my enemy flying for... Well, not so much the enemy flying for his life, not Woundward himself, though the rest of them, perhaps. Um, you know, the sort of uh, 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 foretelling implicit in that uh, is pretty compelling. Um, but, of course, Woundward is deceiving Bigwig. He doesn't mean this, and Bigwig knows he doesn't mean this. Um... But it's, uh, it's, you know, just as El Herrera is tricking the fox, right, and the fox is speaking so confidently, um, uh, we can see, you know, we are, we are, the, the, the truth is being revealed to us here through the El Herrera story in the background. This is the turning point, the crucial moment in their fight, really the climax of their fight. Suddenly, Woundwort leaped forward in a single bound and landed full against Bigwig like a branch falling from a tree. He made no attempt to use his claws. His great weight was pushing chest to chest against Bigwig's. With heads side by side, they bit and snapped at each other's shoulders. Bigwig felt himself sliding slowly backward. 
He could not resist the tremendous pressure. His back legs, with claws extended, furrowed the floor of the run as he gave ground. In a few moments he would be pushed bodily into the burrow behind. Putting his last strength into the effort to remain where he was, he loosed his teeth from Moonwort's shoulder and dropped his head, like a cart horse straining at a load. Still he was slipping. Then, very gradually, it seemed, the terrible pressure began to slacken. His claws had a hold of the ground. Woundwort, teeth sunk in his back, was snuffling and choking. Though Bigwig did not know it, his earlier blows had torn Woundwort across the nose. His nostrils were full of his own blood, and with jaws closed in Bigwig's fur, he could not draw his breath. A moment more, and he let go his hold. Bigwig, utterly exhausted, lay where he was. And yes, Carita, uh, uh, Providence intervenes again, right? Yes, exactly. We can see yet another example out of so many of how everything is orchestrated in just such a way uh, to make things work out well uh, for the rabbits of Watership Down and not so well uh, for General Woundward. Um, the, this fundamental image of the two of them uh, pushing, you know, the, the fact that bigwigs... Um, <sighs> We talked before about Bigwig um, being a kind of, not anti-Woonwart, but parallel to Woonwart, or, or Woonwart being a kind of a foil for Bigwig, um, how there's this similarity, strong similarity between the two of them, their aggression, their, their desire to fight. Um, that description in the previous passage fits for both of them, right? Bigwig likes to fight. Remember there's that moment when Hazel feels a wry envy for Bigwig, right? That Bigwig is actually looking forward to the fight. Um, when when uh, when the Afrofans break in, the two of them are like right, and yet the two of them are pushing in diametrically opposed directions. And more importantly, um, although the two of them are both equally willing to fight, um, this the 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 physical imagery here in this passage, um, you know, the, this this moment as the climax of their fight really shows the difference between what the two of them are about, right? The two of them are like, um, they're so close in so many ways, and yet very different. And the difference is, the one is the invader, right? Forcing his will upon these other rabbits, um, breaking into their, uh, breaking into their warren, trying to push through into, you know, sort of this inner sanctuary where the, where the newborn kittens, the hope of the future of the Warren, are lying. Um, you know, this, and, and there's Bigwig just standing his ground, right, trying only to stop him. And again, even the, the, that, the, the image of, of Bigwig releasing the grip of his claws, right, the two of them are biting at each other, his, his teeth, I mean, the two of them are biting at each other's shoulders, but it's Bigwig who lets go. He sort of stops attacking, stops trying, stops trying to hurt Woundward at all, simply to stop him, right? I must prevent him from coming in and harming Bigwig, um, putting himself merely as an obstacle um, between Bigwig, uh, between Woundward and the rest of his warren. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, uh, it, it, it's just so marvelously evocative of although their attitudes are similar in so many ways, the fundamentally different values that the two of them have. Um, and it's pretty clear which set of values kind of gets El Herrera's approval here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, 
and Kurita, yeah, isn't it interesting that you know he, Woundwort hangs on till he can't breathe anymore, right? Um, so we have him refusing to let go like Bigwig. Maybe had Woundwort let go and pushed, right, and put his head down like Bigwig, he would have, he could have won, right? But he won't release his grip until he's forced to, until his savage, um, uh, you know, sinking his teeth into the uh, into the shoulder of his victim almost suffocates him, right? And again, that too seems uh, sort of evocative of uh, Woundwort's overall attitude. Then, <clears throat> my favorite passage. Once more he climbed on the earth as a Woundwort again. He climbed on the earth pile. Then he stopped. Ravain and Thistle, raising their heads to peer past him from behind, saw why. Flaley had made his way up the run and was crouching immediately below. Blood had matted the great thatch of fur on his head, and one ear, half-severed, hung down beside his face. His breathing was slow and heavy. "'You'll find it much harder to push me back from here, General,' he said. With a sort of weary, dull surprise, Woonwart realized that he was afraid. He did not want to attack Flaley again. He knew, with flinching certainty, that he was not up to it. But who was, he thought? Who could do it? No, they would have to get in by some other way, and everyone would know why. Flaley, he said, we've unblocked a run out here. I can bring in enough rabbits to pull down this wall in four places. Why don't you come out? Flaley's reply, when it came, was low and gasping, but perfectly clear. My chief rabbit has told me to defend this run, and until he says otherwise, I shall stay here. His chief rabbit, said Vervain, staring. It had never occurred to Woundwort or any of his officers that Flaley was not the chief rabbit of his warren. Yet what he said carried immediate conviction. He was speaking the truth. And if he was not the chief rabbit, then somewhere close by there must be another, stronger rabbit who was. A stronger rabbit than Flaley. Where was he? What was he doing at this moment? Woundwort became aware that Thistle was no longer behind him. Um, yeah, yeah, you cannot pass, Yana, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, I, uh, um, I, uh, that's the line, as you probably noticed, um, my chief rabbit has told me to defend this run, and until he says otherwise, I shall stay here, uh, is, uh, the line that brings me to tears every time I read this book. Um, Bigwig wins. How does Bigwig beat Woundwort? Not physically, right? I mean, yes, Bigwig is big and strong. That's why he's able to, you know, that's why Woundwort doesn't kill him right away. But remember that passage at the, you know, that we were just looking at at the beginning there. It's not about physical, right? It's not, it, what it's about is about the will to fight. It's about the attitude. And Woundwort is finally overcome, is finally surpassed Again, not just physically, but in his attitude. What he realized, he does not want to attack Thwaley again. Woundwort, for the first time in his life, finds himself not one who wants to fight, but one who doesn't want to fight but feels that he has to. Right? That's exactly the situation that Woundwort is now in for the first time ever. And why is it? What is it that enables Bigwig to overcome Woundwort? In this way, again, it's what he's doing and why he's doing it, right? 
It's the fact that he is doing this in, in obedience and sacrifice. His chief rabbit has told him to guard this run, and he's going to do that no matter what. Right? This is not, this is not about... The reason Bigwig's will is stronger is that it's not just his will, right? Um, it's his will on behalf of his warren, on behalf of his friends, uh, on behalf of his chief rabbit, who has so thoroughly earned his Bigwig's own loyalty and respect. And that is something that Woonwart fundamentally can't understand. Um, the marvelous, delicious irony of the fact that Woonwart his imagination is running wild with the idea of the great, horrible, mysterious chief rabbit that must be of this warren. Um, of course, the, the marvelous irony that he's already met the chief rabbit of this warren and dismissed him out of hand, right? Um, I absolutely assumed that he was completely worthless, right? Um, again, just sort of shows that um, fundamentally the difference between Bigwig and Moonwart. Where is it that they're different? You know, they're, they're different where it really matters, and that is the fundamental difference between them. For Moonwart, it's all about himself, right? Remember, we were looking at him last week uh, for a long time. It's all about extending his own power, right? That's his fundamental thing, that he wants to have power over others. Bigwig, from the first, from right near the beginning, when he, that, remember, that's the big crisis at the beginning. Who's going to be Chief Rabbit? Is it going to be Hazor? Is it going to be Bigwig? Now we see in the end, um, you know, thinking about Hazel's language, now we see the end of the track that Bigwig has run, right? He could have asserted himself to be Chief Rabbit. But if he had, he would only have been a kind of a mini Woundwort, and I don't think he could have defeated Woundwort here. Instead, he became, he submitted Right, um, he acknowledged and respected Hazel, um, even though Hazel could not possibly fight him. Especially once Hazel is is well, not crippled, but uh, but lamed. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's um, yeah, exactly. Karita <laughs> points out he can. Uh, Woundward considered Hazel not even worth killing. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, Alyssa says that's what she likes about the symbolism of his dropping his head uh, in the previous passage. Yeah, there's that uh, that that gesture of humility, Alyssa. Right? Um, he's going to put his head down. Right? It's not it's not about him. The way that Bigwig, you know, abases himself there. Right? Uh, and we see him just sort of you know giving everything that he has um, for the for uh, for others. Yeah, yeah. That that does work in that way symbolically very, very well. Um, all right, one last passage, and then I'll let you go. Sort of the last follow-up to this. I want to uh, sort of end. We'll have one more thing to, to uh, one more wound passage to talk about next time. Um, this is, of course, when the dog shows up. Run, cried Campion, stamping. Run for your lives! He raced through them and was gone over the down. Not knowing what he meant or where to run, they turned one way and another. Five bolted down the opened run and a few more into the wood. But almost before they had begun to scatter, into their midst bounded a great black dog, snapping, biting, chasing hither and thither like a fox in a chicken run. Woundward alone stood his ground. As the, as the rest fled in all directions, he remained where he was, bristling and snarling, bloody fanged and bloody clawed. 
the dog, coming suddenly upon him, face to face among the rough tussocks, recoiled a moment, startled and confused. Then it sprang forward, and even as they ran, his Ausla could hear the general's raging, squealing cry, Come back, you fools! Dogs are dangerous! Come back and fight! Come back and fight! The last words of General Woundwort, at least the last recorded words of General Woundwort. Um, Michael says it's interesting that he challenges the dog but gives up against Pigwig. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this time reading the book, I was really struck in a way I've never been struck before by that choice of phrase that I highlighted in my subtitle, Woundward Alone Stood His Ground. Um, that's, of course, the chapter title. A couple chapters ago, Bigwig Stands His Ground, right? And we have that now flipped. Um, and the way... I, I find it fascinating, the way that Adams handles Woundward here at the end. So fascinating because he he pulls back from simply letting Woundward become a kind of caricature right? From when it can become a kind of allegorical embodiment of everything that is, you know, evil in, uh, in, in, in rabbit kind. Um, it works both ways, right? On the one hand, Woundwort standing his ground against the dog is sort of the final and utter expression of his madness, right? Um, it's, it's, there's something almost absurd about it. No rabbit could possibly defeat a dog. I mean, just size proportion, not a lab anyway. Um, Woonwork could probably take my dog, actually, but uh, I've, I've, got, I've got a little 15-pound dog. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but not, a, not a lab, I don't think. Um, and, it, and if I'm recalling correctly, it, it is a black lab, the dog from uh, Nuthanger Farm. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway... Um, he so so again it, it seems like on the one hand like the final expression of his madness um the f the final um you know there's an element i've just been reading um i've just been it's january so i've just been rereading the silmarillion and um i uh i was i i just read this morning a passage that made me think of this i i, I was thinking you know woundwort attacking uh, I was reminded of Woundward attacking the dog when I got to the passage about the death of Ungoliant in the Silmarillion. Um, you know, Ungoliant finally, in her uttermost famine, uh, at last uh, devoured herself. And um, I, there's a sense in which that's happening to Woundward here, right? Um, the final expression of this, the, you know, again, thinking of Hazel's uh, words, the 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 final end of the track that he has run, this is the end of the track that he has run, right? To, uh, um, to go further and further uh, into this delusion, right, of, uh, you know, that rabbits can, in fact, you know, stand up to and overcome any evil. Um, no, not do dogs actually turns out, they, they are dangerous, actually, right? Um, but... At the same time, there's another side to this, right? The fact is, we're told that A, he does drive the dog off, right? The dog is wounded, 
both scratched very seriously on the nose and bit is limping, the dog is, when he comes back home. Um, Woundwort does, in fact, succeed to a pretty remarkable extent um, uh, to fight the dog. And um, he... Uh, and what's more, the narrator goes out of his way to point out that if it hadn't been for Woundwort, um, then... Uh, um, then more of the the Efrafins would have died that day. So I mean, it was after its tussle with Woundwort, the dog lost interest, right? Tracked down that one wounded rabbit and killed it, um, but didn't seem that keen on going after rabbits much more that day, right? Um, so Woundwort standing his ground against the dog, it's like, you know, well, by golly, right? In his last moment. The other way of looking at Woundwort's last moment is a moment of self-sacrifice, standing up in defense of his people, kind of like Bigwig standing his ground against Woundwort himself, right? So, like, and that, it's not like that's not the whole story, and it's not, um, it's not. Uh, you know, again, it's you know, it's not like oh, and he died a saint, right? Clearly, but that element is there too, right? He died uh, achieving some good end, in fact, as it happens. Um, and you know, I think that that's uh, that's really fascinating. We'll look a little bit more uh, at Woundwort's uh, end and his final legend next time. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't end with Woundwort in complete ignominy, right? We don't end up with like the the tearing down and the ridicule of Woundwort. There is a sense in which he dies almost a hero, something like a hero, anyway. Um, okay, uh, well, that's about as far as I was guessing I was going to get today. Um, I still have two things that I want to talk about, um, about book four, which we'll uh, do at the beginning of class next time. Um, I want to look at the, you know, uh, one other theme that we've been trying, well, sort of two other themes that we've talked about before and which really come up prominently here at the end and what I want to I want to I want to bring to a close our conclusion of so this question of the natural versus the unnatural this language that keeps coming up in the story um, you know what's be, what's natural for rabbits and what's unnatural for rabbits and look at how that's treated here at, at you know at the end in this final crisis because uh, I think we can see some really interesting things um, so I want to look at that on the one hand at the same time, or no, not the same time, right after that, uh, I want to look at the way that this, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, dreams and legends uh, springing forth out of the grass. Um, I want to look at, 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 at legends and, um, you know, we, we, again, we've, we've sort of talked about that, um, the kind of mythic stature that, remember, Hazel's return to the Warren after he was shot, right? And the kind of mythic stature that Hazel um, has you know, begun to uh, uh, to to have uh, for the other rabbits in the Warren. I want to come back to that uh, here at the, um, here at the end, and of course, looking through to the epilogue um, and the final encounter with Ella Herrera there at the end. Um, so, those are the two topics I want to hit on. I also want to answer. Uh, your questions and talk about other things that you guys want to talk about. So um, if you would uh, go ahead and send me and email me your questions, 
uh, uh, you know, between now and next week, we'll be back next Wednesday uh, for our class at our usual time. And uh, I will look forward to uh, uh, to having one more book discussion, and then we'll talk about uh, the relationship between the book and the film uh, in the following week. Um, thanks. One last uh, announcement. Uh, the nominations for the next Mythgard Academy book uh, have been officially opened uh, uh, by Dr. Powell here in the midst of, uh, of the class. I saw the notification go by uh, in the middle, so if, uh, uh, if you are on the Council of the Wise, you should uh, uh, go and check your email and, and start the conversation to uh, nominate books for our next discussion. So uh, anyway, thanks. Uh, we'll have some uh, reports from uh, from Mythmoot for next time, including, uh, I'll, I'll probably tell you guys uh, more on Wednesday this weekend uh, at Mythmoot. I'm going to uh, announce the next big project that I'm going to do, of course, with the third Hobbit film coming out. Riddles in the Dark is ending. It's not officially over yet. We've still got some things to finish up. Um, but Riddles in the Dark is, 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 is ending. So what am I going to do next? got a big plan, which I'm really excited about. I'm going to announce that on Saturday at Mythmoot, and I'll talk to you guys a little bit about that next uh, next Wednesday as well. So, Thanks, everybody. Good night. I will see some of you this weekend, which I'm very excited about, and uh, I'll talk with the rest of you next week. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>